Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, Alex Merced, the vice chairperson of the Libertarian National Committee. Welcome to Seldom Said, Alex. Thank you for having me on, Bob. It's a pleasure to be on. It's our pleasure, I can assure you. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place. Gotcha. So, uh, again, the name's Alex Merced. Uh, during the day, I'm a financial instructor. I train people in the financial industry to get their, their licenses, sales training, professional training. But in my free time, I've been a very um, passionate political activist uh, ever since uh, 2007. Really was the 2007-2008 election. Uh, specifically Ron Paul, that kind of really got me interested. Uh, it's actually a really interesting story that involves me traveling to the Philippines and whatnot, which I detail in a video uh, called The Aspirational Libertarian. Um, it, but basically from there, I got really involved in just creating sort of media to educate people on economics um, and philosophy. And then it was in 2013 when I was actually recruited to be the public advocate candidate in New York City, where I was the top vote-getter in 2013 for the citywide election for the Libertarian Party. And then I ran again in 2016 as the uh, U.S. Senate candidate for New York, where I ran against Chuck Schumer, and my vote total was the second highest vote total uh, for a U.S. Senate race for the Libertarian Party in New York. And then I ran one more time in 2017 for NYC Comptroller, where um, my out of the citywide candidates, I was the one candidate that actually had an increase for that office versus the 2013 race. With all that experience in running for office, I wanted to kind of start playing more of a support role for candidates. So I ran for vice chair earlier this year, traveled the country, got to meet a lot of libertarian delegates. And in uh, New Orleans in July, I won with um, among uh, five candidates uh, the vice chairmanship of the Libertarian National Committee. And I've just been working to support candidates and just help grow the party so that way um, we move things in the right direction. Interesting terminology. You use the phrase aspirational libertarian that carries an elemental definition of hope, but also the pragmatic nature of wanting to be in power. Can you define the term for the listening audience? Oh, yes. It's actually a big part of sort of my mantra that basically to create sort of a more libertarian world or a more liberal world where people have more autonomy over their lives and whatnot, we have to, you don't have to just empower people by giving them sort of the legal ability to do things, but you also have to inspire them to do the great things that they can do. And one of the ways you can do that is by living the best life you can. And because people, a lot of libertarians, they focus on advocating by just saying, hey, this is the argument, this is the logical case. Isn't it it's so logically consistent? How can you not agree with it? But not everyone necessarily thinks about everything um, in sort of a grand logical system. But people do see people who are successful who are healthy, who are kind, and say, you know what, I'd like to aspire to be that way. And if, you, if they aspire to the way you live your life, they'll oftentimes also aspire to your, their, your values. So I'm constantly preaching the idea of being that aspirational libertarian, living the best life you can, and other people will sort of kind of start liking your ideas because you're such a great example of them. So leading by example. Interesting. Can you ascribe to a moment in your own personal life, professional and personal, where in point of fact, uh, you had this epiphanal feeling that indeed this is what you wanted to do with your life? Uh, let's see. Uh, the, like, as um, far as like, just the li pursuing sort of the, a more free world, definitely the 2007-2008 election, just sort of the whole Ron Paul moment really kind of awoke a very passion in me. Like, before that, really, my passion was music. And I used to do play play guitar, sing, produce electronic music, which I still do for fun. But my passion really shifted towards the sort of ideal of increasing people's autonomy, of giving people more opportunities to be happy. Um, and that basically became my mission sense that moment, because for the first moment, I could understand sort of, there's a... I mean, in the first couple of years after 2008, I really spent a lot of time more secluded, learning philosophy history to fully kind of come to grips with sort of this new passion. But once you kind of see how human incentive and all these different things kind of connect with each other, there's nothing, there's nothing more exciting than seeing people kind of reach their potential and wanting to help them reach that potential. 
As a person who's enamored with music, as many of us are, do you consider politics, just as music is, should be judged as an art form? Very much, very much. Because at the end of the day, it's expression. And when you're creating a song, and I think it's part of what appeals to me. I've always been into very creative endeavors and very into expressing myself. And whether it's in music or in politics, I'm trying to express myself to create a situation in which people are better off. I try to create music that people enjoy and, and, and I feel better. Through politics, I try to express myself in a way that might change not just policy, but also change the way people may decide to live their lives for them to have a better life, to inspire them to their own potential. And to me, that ability to express myself and create change is, is, is something that's very, very tangible, very, very exciting and appealing to me. You mentioned Ron Paul. I do remember a couple of years back walking across a major Ivy campus and finding that a large percentage of the students were much taken by the fact that he would visit. What is there about the man, his policy, his demeanor, and his expression that drew you to him? I think that what drew me to Ron Paul is very much the same thing that drew a lot of people to Bernie Sanders. This is actually something else I talk about when I usually do my aspirational libertarian talk, that even though they were, you know, of older age, um, basically they were exciting to young people because they showed something that young people want to believe, that you can stay idealistic, that you don't have to become cynical as you get older. And they lived a life where they stayed consistent to their values, they lived good lives, trying to be good people, and that's kind of when, especially in those early days when your idealism at its peak, this, to see an example of how you can actually hold on to that is very exciting. It shows you that the world isn't, doesn't have to break you down at some point. And that, to me, I think is why they appeal so much to a younger demographic. How important would you feel the personal ethos of the person is, Ron Paul, Bernie Sanders, if they're going to be one and the same in the matter of political expression? or the manners in which they proceed, do you feel that that alone is enough? Mm, can, you, can, I, can you elaborate on that question? Most certainly. How important is it to have a methodological process, saying pedantically what you want and how you want to get it, and how important, if not equally so, is the ability to make people feel that you're enamored with their being there, with their embracing your views? I think it's always a little bit of both. Um, bottom line is, if people don't like you, they're not going to hear you. And that's one of the things, um, the, the kind of steps that Bernie, that Ron Paul would take, and people on campuses, going, being where the people were that allowed people to be open to listening to them, uh, open to the ideas and liking them. But but the thing is that once people like you, it's also very important what you say afterwards because what you say afterwards, what people end up embracing has real-life consequences in the world around them and the decisions and how they view their life and how they view the challenges in their life, um, What do they, um, whether they view whether their challenges are surmountable or insurmountable. And that's basically so it matters to be liked. It matters to connect with people, but it also matters what comes up afterwards. But one can't really happen without the other. It's interesting. Uh, one would wonder whether we've reached an age where Hollywood is running candidates and people are playing <laughs> a role. Have you grown somewhat cynical about the normalized process as it appears? Um, yes and no. Um, of course, I'd always would, you know, we would all love this sort of uh, ideal where everybody kind of is constantly civically involved and looking into every candidate and every race. But I, to me, it's totally rational. It's kind of like um, uh, Dr. Kaplan's book, um, The Myth of the Rational Voter, where people have, have lives, they have work, they have family, they have their own challenges in their life. So it's understandable kind of how basically kind of politics gets dominated by sound bites and whatnot. Um, but that's kind of why I find this particular time exciting, because more than I've seen in a long time, uh, the last few years, with all the volatility there's been in politics, it suddenly made people on all sides much, I would say, less apathetic and much more caring about what's going on. That hasn't necessarily yielded in sort of a perfectly 
perfect inform- availability of perfect information or seeking the perfect information, but people are suddenly caring about the process again. And even if that yields some volatility in the short run, I think we'll, ha- we'll ha- on the other end of that volatility, we'll have something that at least is a step in the right direction. Many who are critical of libertarianism would argue that it's too revolutionary. Do you consider yourself a revolutionary, Alex? Um, yeah, I do think a, a revol- uh, the core of libertarianism, it's, it's basically a universal peace, not just peace between nations, but peace between individuals, peace between collectives of individuals. It's, it's sort of a massive revolutionary, or really not revolutionary, evolutionary level of peace. Because you're, you're not asking people to revolt. You're, not ask, you're asking people to do the, quite the opposite, to sort of denounce the idea of compelling others, of using violence against others um, in, a, in a very massive way. To me, that's more of an evolution than a revolution, because... Revol- I don't know, always just find the term revolution to always have oftentimes a more connotation of, of force and pushing back. This is more of a sort of universal disarmament of individuals to choose to coexist with each other and their differences. Again, I'm playing devil's advocate more than anything else. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I tend to try to research a guest before I do it in his philosophy. For those who would argue that there is a humane type of naivete ascribed to such feelings— that we're all going to be different, we're all going to have our own corners, and we're all going to stay there in times of stress. Uh-huh. How would you respond? Say that again? There are those who would take the position oh. that one is what they are, and reaching out is nice, but after the few minutes of acclimation, I'm returning back to what I understand best. How do you equate that? Of course. That? I mean... Uh, all political ideology at its root has ideals that can oftentimes uh, come off as naive because you're expecting you're expecting the whole world to sort of you're expecting sort of a consensus towards a particular direction in the world and consensus are never perfectly in any direction but ideals are important to have because they give you direction um, so the example I always use when I start when people when, I, when people sort of criticize the idea of having sort of a, a perfect libertarian ideal, I, I try to talk about the idea, the idea of ideals in general. So, like, if I were to work out, uh, I can imagine sort of a perfect physical self that, that's ripped and muscular and lean. Now, more than likely, I'm probably not going to reach that ideal, but by focusing that ideal, it gives me a direction so that way I can get closer to it. So by having that sort of a radically peaceful, individualistic ideal, you know, it I hope that maybe that's, that we get there and that's possible, but at least we'll get somewhere close because it's part of the conversation. So I understand the criticism of ideals and utopian ideals, but I do think they serve a purpose in, in giving people direction, whatever direction that their ideals are in. Now, we're within five minutes of our first station break. I'll give you a 30-second lead uh, before we take it. But I'm wondering if you can give us a synopsis in precy form of the Libertarian Party itself. Who are they? Where did they come from? Uh, so the Libertarian Party was formed back in 1971, and we're basically here to basically be, have a libertarian voice in the political process. Um, that 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 is strict. That basically is unabashedly libertarian. That is unabashedly pushing uh, libertarian policy reforms, candidates, ballot referendums, and trying to push that world of, of a greater individual peace. You mentioned Ron Paul, Bernie Sanders, persons of their ilk. Did you tend to, at some stage in your life, Alex, have a courtship with different philosophies because of the individual? Uh, yes. I mean, before Ron Paul and I became like libertarian, I was actually a very hard left uh, progressive for a period of time um, before that. Um, and it all, came, it all came from that same place of just wanting people to be, to be able to have better lives and better opportunities and whatnot. The difference is just the as my understanding of the means to get there has changed over time. The I, my political ends have changed over time, but my interpersonal or my social ends of making people's lives better has not changed at all. If I were to click my heels and judge where you'd like the country to be in ten years, can you espouse a dream and place it in context? Um. An ideal world, basically, you have a world where you have much more autonomy and enterprise and charity and in our individual relationships. That would generally lead to a lot of positive trends, like a lower cost of living, uh, more peace around the world, 
that would generally lead to more positive outcomes, more positive opportunities. Um, so I would love to get there or as close to there as possible within the next 10 years or within any, within any time frame. Would you accept the premise that libertarianism does smack to some degree of a coalition ethic that you're willing to subscribe to either party or any party that subscribes to a measure of your core views? Um, depends. If you're talking about a libertarian as a philosophy, libertarians may decide to pursue different political routes. As a libertarian party member, uh, the whole idea of capital L libertarianism, I am a partisan. I do think that really, far as in the political space, the libertarian party in the long run is the most viable uh, mechanism for libertarian change within the political sphere. It's be conversation. Um, but there are libertarians who operate in the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, and oftentimes their expectations, their goals, their aims are different. Um, but I rather have people being holding libertarian views in any shape or form, and the, the nature of our views on tolerance and coexistence do lead us to more sort of coalition tactics and be able to build much more broad coalition. Do you find when you speak to youthful audiences reflections of the self that you just described, individuals seeking who will gravitate to a measure of libertarian policy? Um, I've had fairly positive responses with youthful audiences uh, and audiences of all ages, because at the end of the day, the libertarian message is about, it's really an appeal to who, who you want to be and just saying, hey, I want you to be who you want to be. And everybody can appeal to that, appeal to that, appeal to their sense of self and the, their their desire to sort of um, fulfill their self-identity and where they want to be. Always the question is, you know, people's fear of each other, because people have no problem with them having the freedom to be themselves. What they get scared of is they're scared of what happens when other people are themselves and how it might affect them. And that's why the Libertarian Party and Libertarianism has to focus on hope and tolerance and whatnot, because in order to have a world where we can let each other be free, we have to not be scared of each other. And that's a very different political conversation than oftentimes the other political parties have, which is why I think the Libertarian Party is a unique vehicle and why it uh, has to be the vehicle that in the long run changes the conversation. Because we're at a size, we're at a nimbleness now where we can kind of build a path of, uh, and a message of hope and trying to reduce fear and polarization to create a world where we can just let each other be. That's a marvelous description of where we'd like to be. We're within 15 minutes or 15 seconds, I stand corrected, of our first break. We'll be back in a moment. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Our special guest, Alex Merced, the vice chair of the Libertarian National Committee, Alex, I would feel that at some point in any discussion of the recent elections, it is necessary to find out the guests' feelings. What is the party's reaction and your reaction to the recent midterms? Um, there's quite a mixed reaction because a lot of people, whenever you're a candidate, you always have the best expectations because you put in a lot of work and you have to have expectations to kind of drive you to go in uh, day in and day out, you know, doing the hard work that is campaigning. But, so, uh, there's a lot of people who didn't have results and met their expectations. But, I am very optimistic. Because when I take a look at the results, I have something very clear, that there was growth. In a lot of those races, we had higher vote totals than we have in the past. We earned ballot access in states that we didn't have before. We won offices, uh, more offices, which is great. But, the thing is that why that's important, even if it's a tiny bit of growth, why it's important that we had growth in 2018 is because a lot of people looked at 2016 and the Libertarian Party in 2016 as sort of like an, in the sense that, well, it was just a unique nature of that year where you had a electorate that wasn't very thrilled with both options, so looked at the Libertarian Party a little bit more than they usually would. In 2018, that dynamic was not there. It was really a, a election year where basically it was I got to vote for my team so the other team doesn't win. Um, I don't care about the other team because I need to make sure things are less worse. Um, and the problem with that is you vote for less worse, you get less worse, which is still worse. So you're just a, it's a slow slide. But 
the fact that we still grew even in that environment, which was a not a liber- a, a third party favorable environment, it, to me is tremendous. I mean, we had we earned. John Uter got enough votes to earn us ballot access in Oklahoma. Larry Sharp earned us ballot access in New York, which we haven't, we have never achieved in the last 46 years. So that was a huge event. Bethany Baldez in Idaho was within a few votes of beating the state Senate majority leader um, over there in Idaho for, for a state Senate, which that's huge for a third-party candidate to, to come in without that close. It almost looked like she won for a moment. Okay, we, we won Sean Elliott, Michael Cassidy, Martha Bueno, Thomas Warfel, all won seats on Phil and Water in Florida. Uh, Joe and Ethan Bishop Henchman, uh, a married couple in Washington, D.C., in both their races for city council and attorney general, both outpolled the Republican candidate in their race and secured ballot access in D.C. So there's a lot of, while again, we always want more and we always want to grow faster, we are growing. And we have many things to point to for optimism and hope for the future for the Libertarian Party. It's not, it's not linear. It's not overnight. Politics is built by building the infrastructure, by building the coalition, and taking the time to get everybody on board. And it does take time, but many of us are more and more dedicated to taking that time and making this happen. There is a quotation attributed to the journalist Jimmy Breslin. He once said that individuals become conservative with their second mortgage. Is there... <laughs> Is there any concern that libertarian ideals will be co-opted with victory? Uh, yeah, that's always the fear, and that's that's another. I mean, that's a reason why I am libertarian because all institutions become corrupt over time. Like any institution that I'm like today, as a as an institu- any institution, any party, any business, any government, and anything over time as a success, it also gravitates people who want to use that success uh, for other for other ends. And over time, it becomes top-heavy. It becomes bureaucratic. And this is why you need institutions need to be able to rise, grow, born, and die. Um, so right now, the Libertarian Party is young. Right now, it is nimble. It still has its integrity and, and isn't corrupted. But, hey, if, we have, if we're successful, that's great. We're going to cause a lot of change in the meantime. But down the road, that is going to attract more people who may not necessarily have the same ideals that I do, who have, who have the same ends that I do. And at that point, when that part, when it grows and becomes top heavy, and its time comes, well, new parties will sprout up, and you'll have that birth growth. This is the reason why you do need uh, in, not just turnover in, at all levels, institutional turnover. And that's why I think I'm such a free market person. Is because free markets allow for institutional turnover, so that way you can have fresh institutions replacing old ones that have become sort of corrupted and stale over time. For those in listening audience who might take the position that free markets also lend themselves to a series of oligarchies, a series of individuals and places where the control is in the hands of a few, are your reaction? Um, I, oftentimes I think that that doesn't look deep enough into the details of how that process becomes. Yes, maybe a lot of these oligarchies have come through enterprise, but it's not necessarily always through free enterprise. Oftentimes there is sort of a strong partnership between government and enterprise that leads to these oligarchies, where basically these, this partnership between enterprise, which isn't, which isn't free markets, but it isn't necessarily socialism either. It's just sort of this kind of worst of all worlds, uh, where you have this partnership that often is used to sort of keep out competition, to not allow institutional turnover, because you're not allowed, you basically create basically all these oligarchs, all these sort of big interests, oftentimes put barriers uh, formally and informally, in allowing sort of new entrants, uh, those new ideas, those new institutions to come in and replace old ones. Problem is, oftentimes the the answer that people propose oftentimes is just kind of freezing everything and stopping growth uh, altogether in a sense. Saying, hey, you know what? If things don't move any further from here, then we don't run the risk of uh, we don't run the risk of all this in- these institutional risks. But then you don't also run into all the benefits and 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 the upside as well, like. The, the phrase is less, more risk, more reward. But if you take out all the risk out of human interaction and human organization and human life, then you take out all the reward as well. Um, and that's, to me, always my fear with a lot of the people who get too scared of people being free and too scared of being people having more autonomy that they, they focus so hard on mitigating the risk that they accidentally mitigate all the rewards. Politics 
at the present time seems to be incredibly passionate. We hear quotes about when they go low, when they go low, we go higher, and so forth. Mm-hmm. The primaries seem to present a, a contradiction in terms. You had candidates trying to be diplomatic and gentlemanly in their presentation, and then others just fervently attacking them on a very personal level. Is it going to be easy for you as a libertarian or the libertarian party to play that gentlemanly middle ground? Um, It's not going to be easy. I mean, but it's important because it's not just what you fight for, but how you fight that makes a difference. So what's happened over the last few years, I mean, it's not new necessarily, but 2016 kind of was heightened with the example of how you win was you win through polarization, you win through fear. And because that example was set, that, that example has been followed by everyone in every party uh, to an extreme, where polarization has only been magnified. The only way to turn that around is to have an example of being able to win through more civility, through peace. When I ran for vice chair this year, that was my whole mantra. Basically, my, my campaign slogan was, let's be libertarian together. And I it was very kind. I spoke kindly of my fellow opponents. I traveled and basically did my best to be as civil as possible. And I, I won a fairly... Uh, had a fairly strong showing at the convention. So I do think it is possible. Um, and in, I think there is an appetite for it right now, an appetite, but it is difficult because fear plays so well. It's easy to scare people and say, you know what? The world's a scary place. That person's a scary person. So all you need to do is give me control and I'll make it all go away. That's an easy political sell. But the problem is you're, you're, you're asking that discourages people from having autonomy, exercising autonomy. That's why the libertarian parties do need to have to go the approach of hope and saying, hey, you know what, the world, we believe in you. We want you to make your life better. We want to give you back the keys and give you the power to do whatever you can dream of. That's a different message. It's a harder message to sell because people, it's easy to be scared. But it's the right message. And if you can win a message, it'll reflect on everybody else. Everybody else will start embracing that. That's one of the positive outcomes of, uh, in part, in Obama's win back in 2008. I mean, his message was, for the most part, positive, And you did have sort of, while you did have polarization, um, you did have some more positive outcomes. So even though I may disagree on a lot policy-wise, that tone was appreciated, even though there were times where there was divisive uh, aspects of that election as well, but it was still a different tone. And I think an appetite for that tone, and uh, hopefully we can uh, serve that appetite. Before I uh, ask the next question, I must ask your indulgence in that my own individualism has been afflicted by allergies, and one can sense it in my voice. So the passion is there, the tone may a bit uh, ragged, but the sincerity I'm hoping is applied if we talk about uh, this idea of passion and how to apply it and how to use it, do you feel that there is a base out there in this nation of ours where people are prepared to be totally individualistic? People always are struggling um, in the in the conflict between several different priorities, values, and whatnot. Um, many may not. Uh, prioritize or value individualism as highly as I do. But a libertarian world doesn't necessarily need everyone to value that as much. People can operate collectively and organize in a libertarian world. We just want to let everybody be free to pursue the values that they have um, and coexist. That's, that's literally what all the, as a libertarian, I'm asking for. I'm not asking everyone to have my values, to have my views. I'm just asking to, for us to all sort of as an individual disarm and allow each other to coexist. And yeah, that might conflict, that, that, that does here and there conflict with values, but um, over time, if you, if you put that message out there, we can have a, a very pluralistic, a very, uh, you could have that liberalism exist in, in, in a much grander scale than it does now uh, to everyone's benefit. And I do think a country like America where uh, within, within sort of its folklore, within its history, within its, uh, every aspect of its sort of cultural mean um, has a lot of those aspects sort of sewn into it. So there is sort of a, a, a prime, uh, sort of a primer you get just by being enculturated within the America, within Americana, in a sense. There is a kind of Walt Whitman type affectation with this idea that people are by nature good and capable of superior motives and actions. 
Do you feel there is that reservoir of goodwill out there that has not been bastardized by change that can be employed and directed to a common goal? I do, I do believe that people are generally good. A book that I loved that kind of helped enhance this opinion for me is a book called The Moral Molecule, where they actually looked at sort of releases of oxytocin and how this affects people's behavior. And that actually kind of really showed me that we're like really wired to cooperate. We're wired to be, to, to, to respect each other. Um, it's just sometimes things go wrong that can affect that. Um, and that's a, a book I highly recommend, but I do think most people by and large are good. And I think if people, we encourage things. That, and this is where I say, I, like I, I grew up Catholic, um, even though I don't necessarily practice now, things like uh, tolerance, forgiveness, which is not necessarily part of, you know, core to sort of libertarian philosophy, which is just basically a philosophy of, of nonviolence, of peace, of non-aggression, but things like tolerance and forgiveness and whatnot can, are values that do help foster an environment where we can coexist and you can have that better will and autonomy towards others. So to me, focusing on promoting that kind of uh, just goodness as an individual can help move us in that direction and, and build that coalition of good people. Someone had posited the question to me that ultimately something like total freedom is going to run into the reality of nature and man. There was one position taken by the Libertarian Party in regard to the acceptance of gay marriages. The individual I spoke to, uh, the individuals in plural, because many agreed with them, felt that this was a positive step. They all espoused the belief that any man or woman should have the right to pursue their own lifestyle in their own way. And yet, the Libertarian position in regard to gun control seemed to them contraindicated there was a contradiction in their mind preventing them from embracing the libertarian ethic by the fact that you had these two contraindicated positions. How do you respond to the idea that total freedom means the possibility of infringing on the freedom of others? Basically, when people kind of go in that direction, where they sit there and say, well, if we take your ideas to the absolute extreme, it may not be so pretty, I go... Well, just because you may be scared of the absolute extreme doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't. We don't have more that we need to travel now. Like, doesn't mean we are as far as we can go yet. Um, so, for example, um, losing too much weight may be unhealthy, but doesn't necessarily mean you've lost as much weight as you should yet. Um, so, if I can at least get people to realize that maybe that's the direction we should be going in, even if we can't agree on how far we should go in that direction, we can at least move in the right direction. And we'll part ways when we must part ways. But uh, I, I generally believe more autonomy is better. And I do think total freedom, more, at least closer to total freedom, oftentimes will yield better benefits uh, and less risk. Because it, it, it's not just the options people change, people's incentives change, uh, people's perceptions of risks and rewards and the level of responsibility that they have to undertake change. And there's um, for example, there's actually a really interesting uh, piece that I saw. I think it was, this was from a, a show on Vice, uh, or Vox, I mean, um, where basically they looked at this prison in Europe, where the prison in Europe, what it does is that instead of like punishing you and just jailing you and basically giving you no freedom, it actually kind of creates a little free world within that where you can kind of learn to operate within society. That level of freedom actually led to less recidivism. Because when people are expected to learn to coexist, they'll rise to that responsibility. Um, the more you expect people to not be responsible for X, Y, and Z, it just kind of creates a, a self-fulfilling cultural meme. And that's kind of the same thing we were seeing in the prison system. So while this piece that I was watching wasn't necessarily from a, a libertarian uh, angle, I could see sort of a grander libertarian takeaway in the sense that the way we model our world has a great effect on the way people behave going forward and whether they 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 react to the chains that bind them or rise to the freedom that they have. Um, and that's kind of what we saw in these differences between how we how you handle incarceration versus giving people sort of more freedom and using it less more of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, more rehabilitation than punishment. You then ascribe to the fact or the premise that rehabilitation is more positive than punishment, more effective, and more indeed possible. Yes. Agreed. I, I, I'm, I'm, I think 
I'm generally always for rehabilitation over punishment um, because we are, it, the benefits are greater. I mean, having more people on board who can coexist um, creates all sorts of economies of scale that are to all our benefits, that create more avenues, more opportunities, more benefits to everyone versus the cost of, of punishment, the cost of punishment, the effects it has on individual behavior far as basically, um, you know, you know, recidivism rates generally don't respond well to just straight up punishment. Um, also, the, the psychology aspects of it, it, it just always seems that when you give people the benefit of the doubt, they're more likely, you're more likely to get a positive result than not. Doesn't mean you always will, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm generally a, a believer in second chances and third chances. That's a nice way to end our second segment. I tend to subscribe to that feeling myself, although I've encountered circumstance where there is not a quintessential evil, but there is something wrong that needs to be corrected. We'll pursue this line of thought in a few seconds. The program is seldom said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back uh, to our last segment. Uh, it's the sign that I found ostensibly of a good program when it's gone so very quickly, and this indeed is one. Alex, perhaps it's time to talk about specific issues and how they're reflective on the policy of the Libertarian Party. In regard to, for instance, immigration, can you espouse the position of the party? We're generally always for moving more to a world of more travel uh, and, and basically lower burdens. So basically, uh, I think we reinforced that in our platform. We made a, a change to our platform this year that, that, that basically used, basically opened the door to even a more stronger sentiment towards that sort of more free travel, free movement. Uh, I would say most libertarians are open borders, not all libertarians, but most of them are at least close to that. Um, We generally, because again, if you want to market free people, you need free trade. Um, Just the exchange of ideas, uh, the competition between people with their feet, all these things create positive accountability in the world. I understand the fears that people have over... Uh, again, this is always the issue when people when you talk about free trade, free travel, free markets, free anything. Uh, people are always scared of what people do. Freedom, scared, scared of what the consequences are. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean we don't have more in that direction that we can go. Um, I definitely think, to me, immigration is very personal because I'm, I'm a son of an immigrant from Guatemala. Um, and uh, basically a lot of what's happened in Central America heavily affected my mom's growing up, which affected sort of my upbringing. Um, and all that when I dealt with, dealt with my grandmother talking about sort of regime change in the 50s and uh, etc. So the way, the way I look at immigration is the way I look at um, any kind of prohibition. So basically when you make something illegal or you make something hard to get, you form black markets. So when we talk about illegal immigration, illegal immigration is essentially a black market for immigration and it has all the characteristics of a black market where you have, uh, where you're dealing with sort of criminal organizations to, to procure the service, but there's more violence involved, uh, all, all, every aspect, and then also more harm done to people on both sides of the issue uh, because of those black markets. And generally the solution, the way you fix the black market, is by getting rid of the need for it, by making it legal, whether it's marijuana and making it legal, whether it's immigration and making it much easier to immigrate, so that way there is no need for a black market for immigration. Um, these are the things we can get rid of those and do a lot of harm reduction um, so I'm generally always kind of wanting to move away from uh, prohibition and black markets, and that's how I feel about immigration. That's how I feel about uh, recreational substances uh, or medicinal substances or any substance, and uh, also how I feel about guns. With the supposed caravan approaching the Texas border, what do you feel a libertarian president's position would be then? There was one libertarian party member from... New Hampshire, who put, uh, who put out a suggestion of having sort of a, a U.S. naval ship go to the coast, so that way they can begin the process of, of doing the asylum application with a lot less uh, hoopla, because basically you can bring the caravan onto the ship. They're not necessarily on, on, on mainland U.S. soil, but you can still kind of speak to them, see what the situations are, see who, who meet the uh, asylum guidelines, the paperwork, and process everything effectively at much less political cost, at much less controversy um, on, on, on either side. 
So that's, that's a possibility if there was a libertarian president to take that approach, to sit there and say, hey, let's figure out what's sort of the in-between, how can we follow the process that we have, yet be cognizant of, you know, the number of people, the, the dire straits that they may be in, but the fact that, you know, there's a process and we need to adhere to that process. So I thought that was a, a decent suggestion from a, a, uh, an LP member. You've mentioned on a personal level your own background. Uh, Guatemala had its history of difficulties in the 60s, Tupamaru, mm-hmm. and so forth. Are you then an advocate of granted asylum for those in danger and in need? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just all for just letting people travel where they want to go. You know, I mean, as long as you're not passing, you, have, you don't have any clinical diseases and you pass a background check, I'm generally for letting people kind of travel where they want to go. Um, for whether it's for asylum, for opportunity, or for leisure, um, I, I, you know, motives to me aren't shouldn't be the determinant of whether people have the right to do something. Um, and that's where I think libertarians differ a lot with, on a lot of issues. Where a lot of people sit there and say, "Well, we should make it illegal if people are using it for acts." Kind of like the whole medicinal marijuana argument. Well, libertarians are more like motives doesn't matter. You have rights and. The fact that you your motive may be different than another doesn't necessarily change that you have that right. Returning to that issue of gun control, and it seems almost a circular argument, the parents in the recent shooting who wept aloud during her broadcasts and simply said she was tired of prayers, she was tired of good feelings, she wanted control. How again can we reinforce this libertarian idea of every man, not so much for himself, but for his own ethic, and the fact that people are killing each other in mass? This last shooting yes. was the worst shooting in two weeks. That's an incredible thing to get your mind around. Yeah, no, I mean, this is an epidemic, and this is a problem that does need sober conversations, and it goes just beyond issue, it goes beyond uh, mental health also goes just around the culture at the moment. All these things that are going to affect whether there's more violent situations, not just gun situations, but more violent situations where people are losing their lives in mass. Um, and I do think there's a lot of levels where that happens. Now, for the first part, um, I, a lot of people always want to, they want more control because they want more certainty, which is an under, a very understandable uh, desire to sit there and say, hey, you know what? I'm tired of un- unpredictableness, especially when that unpredictableness could mean the loss of my family, the loss of people that I care about, the loss of my job. Um, I understand people's fear of uncertainty. The problem is the more you try to control uncertainty, oftentimes the result is you create more of it. Um, so oftentimes there is a leap of faith that has to happen where you have to realize that the only certainty in life is uncertainty. Um, but again, that aspect that if you control it, you'll oftentimes create more of it. But um, on the on the gun issue, uh, a couple of things to say why why I generally I'm not against people taking steps to secure the areas. Again, the libertarian isn't saying say hey there shouldn't be nothing done about guns. The question is who does it, how is it enforced, who makes those decisions. We oftentimes don't want people uh, you know wholesale in, one size fits all solutions. So for example, a federal government solution what on each state is very different. What's going on in each county is very different. What's going on in each very town is different. So when you have much more grand-scale solutions, um, you oftentimes lose sight of a lot of those micro-differences. But at the same time, when the government's the one creating the solution, that solution has to be imposed, and that has its own consequences as well. It doesn't necessarily mean there are solutions. Um, so I just want to put that out there, that I'm not saying that there isn't any solutions, that you can't have a discussion about guns. Um, the question is sort of where the, what levers are you using? But my fear is when you start going towards the prohibition direction, which is where a lot of people want to go, and either making it harder to get guns or making you unable to get guns, um, you, you will end up with black markets, which are less transparent. Um, if you want the police, if you want law enforcement to be able to track and prevent the next gun crime, um, you're going to want them to have some aspect to be able to issue a warrant to a gun store and whatnot. But if they're not available at all uh, or, hard, or, or so unavailable, that people have to go into black markets, then it becomes much harder to track where they're going and much harder to predict where the next event may be or to trace why it may happen. Um, you have a lack of transparency, which is the same thing you see in drug black markets, uh, in immigration black markets. Uh, you, have, you, you lose track of the problem. So you've just made the problem worse because you've made it less transparent. Um, so I'm not saying that's going to, that, again, 
I'm not saying that there isn't harm that we can try to find ways to reduce, but I'm, I'm I always fear the the the, the other consequences that happen when you start moving towards a more prohibition black market direction. If we carry that idea to its ultimate, there is the current controversy as to whether reporters are seeking the truth or their own partisan reflections. How much truth do you feel in a libertarian-oriented government the average citizen should have? Complete? Unobtrusive? You mean like in the sense where they should have access to sort of all information and complete like government transparency or that um, elaborate a little bit more on sort of where you're we're going with this question. Certainly. I'm thinking of a number of historical examples. The day after Pearl Harbor, the New York Times had an editorial in which they said, we've struck them, we've gotten even, and we were nowhere near getting even. We were at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. Other people might take the position that gun control is feasible that an armed person inside a store can prevent takeover and loss of life from a person entering the store with a weapon. Do you feel that a total honest approach and an acceptance of rationality is in everyone's interest? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a sense that everyone should be able to voice all arguments in, in the debate, be able to seek as much evidence as they want to make their appeals because it's how we get... It's all, at the end of the day, nothing changes without, even if it's a, it doesn't have to be implicit consent through legislation, but if it's, even if it's an informal consent by the way we change our actions and behaviors in our everyday lives, that happens through our interaction and discussion. So I do think um, people should be encouraged to seek truth, to use, to seek information, seek data, refine their arguments, interact with each other, and not necessarily get tightened or, or, or shut, each, shut conversations with each other down, because we can get closer to those levels of consensus, again, informal, formal or informal, that'll create change that can make things better. So just having the conversation about um, gun acts, violent acts, uh, the economy, about all this stuff, not only may affect policy, but on another grander scale will affect the actions we take in our own lives that also have an effect on mitigating these situations and mitigating all sorts of problems that we talk about in all of policy areas. So truth, more truth, discussion, more deliberation is always good. We're within uh, six and a half minutes of the end of uh, what has proven to be a, a finally interesting program. So I'll just throw out examples of issues and uh, if you might perhaps then respond in the manner of a libertarian as to what you feel the solutions are. The drug prices that we're losing, what has been the libertarian position? Like the, the 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 drug crisis, as far as like uh, opioid addiction, um, at the end of the day, moving away prohibition always is going to be the most harm reduction. Um, I do think sort of the mid step that a lot of people are taking is still at least a step in the right direction, where you're seeing things like injection sites and and sort of trying to make more steps in harm direction uh, or harm reduction. Um, but uh, to me, I think uh, moving away from prohibition. Uh, would would actually reduce harm because you can have much more quality control when things are through transparent buyers and sellers. Um, you can monitor the extent of which the problem exists because people can do it out openly, um, and you can and then it's much easier to reach out to those people to mitigate the problem. Now it doesn't necessarily mean there aren't there is no con there, there's no uh, growing pains. I mean even when you had I think. Uh, when you ended alcohol prohibition, uh, in the short run, I think there was uh, a slight increase in use in the short run that tapered off and went and, and reversed in the other direction in the long run. Um, and I think we'll probably see, I think, the same thing in Portugal with some of their decriminalization efforts and whatnot. So I, from the evidence of moving away from prohibition historically, um, it always just seems that that seems to work pretty well. I'm referring to a number of the issues raised by potential audience members that were posited to me, and uh, it was presupposed that I would ask them of you, if you do not mind. Uh, the next, uh, marvelous, I appreciate the openness, physician-assisted suicide. Um, from, I, mean, I mean, from my point of view, if your body is your property, and I think this is generally the, the, the libertarian view, because... We're all about self-ownership, basically. Our views of individual peace and sort of nonviolence comes from the idea of self-ownership, where your body is yours, your is yours. Uh, the fruits of your labor are yours. So your life is yours. 
no one else has a right to take your life, but if you want your life taken, you have a right to take it. Um, and I know uh, at the end of the day, if someone close to me uh, was was in a position like that, well, that would, of course, emotionally distress me. And I can feel that pain of somebody losing somebody, and I've lost people who I, I care about quite deeply, but at the end of the day, um, we do believe that your body is your property. That's the, if that's the decision you want to make, that is your decision to make. It is, of course, very difficult to have a judgment of comparative values or dangers and issues. If you were to choose the top two issues that you feel are afflicting American society today, Alex, what might they, in your opinion, be? I think it's just a general, right now the country in the, or the world in a lot of ways is going through just sort of a growing pain. I mean, the amount of information, the amount of ideas that the world has had access to is growing faster than ever, and people are being exposed to more and more variety of ideas than ever before, which is a good thing. But I don't think the world has necessarily adjusted to, ha- to, to that reality yet, which has created polarization in every issue. So to me, just sort of that natural that natural acclimation to this sort of acceleration of information will will create some more stability in the long run. But to me, of course, I think uh, free markets go a long way, and free markets um, it doesn't always have to be taken to its extreme. I take it to its extreme, but others don't have to. But the idea of moving towards a world of more free markets um, can improve a lot of economic outcomes that have uh, that also improves psychological outcomes, which improves um, all sorts of which improves criminal justice outcomes, which can, and then also uh, could also have foreign policy outcomes because more wealthy countries around the world, which the wealthier you are, the less you necessarily want to get into sort of uh, the to physical altercations in a sense. Uh, you're less like, you're going to be more afraid of bombs and all sorts of things. So countries who trade each other oftentimes don't bomb each other. So I, I do want more trade, more markets. And I think that has benefits all across um, all issues, but that's really at the end of the day at its core just means free people. But prohibition uh, and markets are probably areas where I'm, I'm most focused. And then third would probably be sort of a foreign policy and having a more peace-based policy stance than, a, than sort of a more aggressive policy stance. Of, Alex, sort of, Alex, if I may, yeah. uh, I'm loath to interrupt uh, your comments, which are arresting and interesting. Uh, we have a few seconds, a minute and a half, can you tell those listeners in the audience who have been taken with your ideas and ideals how they might become involved in party activities? Um, please uh, go to uh, lp.org slash join. And actually, if you go this, this week, we're doing a special uh, sort of spirit week called the We the People Week. If you go to lp.org slash We the People and you become a member, you actually get a cool little card. And then you can, you can always follow me on Twitter, Twitter at Alex said. I'm always trying to out ideas and have civil conversations. So if anyone wants to engage with me on any of these issues and just kind of have a back and forth and not necessarily change each other, but at least understand each other better, I'm more more than welcome to that to, to that engagement. Uh, and hopefully I'll see you guys within Libertarian Party events uh, if uh, you found what I had to say persuasive enough. Will we walk into a store at some point in time and find a book with your name and authorship? Hopefully someday. Hopefully, I'm. I'm. I, I, it's definitely one of the things I would. I, I am and would like to work on, um, among many other things. Though. But there are podcasts um, someday and several other items that you'll find my name on. Uh, so do Google me. We most certainly will. This has been an informative and obviously interesting hour. There are a lot of changes the country is ready for. One hopes they'll be receptive to some of the ideas that our guest today espoused. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said. See you next time.